Hi listeners, today we hear from Dina Evans about her career as a coach. Dina coached the women's cross-country team at Stanford from 1999 to 2005, during which time they won the NCAA cross-country title in 2003 and many individual track titles. She coached athletes like Sarah Hall, Lauren Fleshman, and Alicia Craig, to name a few. She went on to find her own track club, the Peninsula Distance Club, formerly Strava Track Club, and has helped a diverse range of athletes reach their potential in the sport. She's also served as the staff coach on many USATF national teams, including serving as the men's assistant distance coach at just this last week's World Championship Team USA in Eugene. Dina speaks on her perspective in the sport, including the struggles faced by coaches, especially women in the NCAA system who also have young families, and why the diversity of coaching at the professional level is lacking, and why we need to broaden those networks of potential coaches we pull from. Hey everyone, welcome back to Keeping Track. We have a few exciting things to announce. This month we have joined forces... Um, and become a mini network with two other great women in sports media, the podcast Hear Her Sports, run by Elizabeth Emery, and Strides Forward with Cherie Louise Turner. We figure, as women in sports media, it would be easier to accrue support together than it has been alone, and so far, we've been right. Our first sponsor for the month is thefeed.com. I don't know if you've heard of the feed, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Where do you go to buy your gels, hydration mixes, and energy bars for training and racing? If you're not shopping at thefeed.com, you're missing out because The Feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition. They have brands you know and love like Scratch Labs, Cliff Bar, Morton, plus their athlete customized supplements called Feed Formulas. They have over 250 brands, so you have thousands of products to choose from and try. And they make sports nutrition easy. They pick the best products for you and show you how and when to use them to give you a competitive edge. You can actually go get 15% off using code KEEPTRACKING15 for almost all products on the feed. Go check them out, and we'll have that code on our blog and on our Instagram, too. Okay, we're here with Dina Evans. and. If you don't know Dina, I have a little bit of a resume of her professional accomplishments. I'm sure our conversation will dive into more than just that. Uh, Dina coached cross country and track at Stanford from 1999 to 2005, and then coached post-college athletes um, from all over. The Strava Track Club, which is now Peninsula Distance, and some athletes via, you know, telephone and internet too. Um, And she served as a USATF coach on quite a few teams from Junior Worlds to Senior Cross Country to most recently uh, in Eugene, the men's distance assistant coach. Um, And she just came off that amazing two weeks where USA had a record-setting amount of medals earned. And I hope we get to talk a little bit about that amazing uh, Worlds in in Eugene on home soil. So. Dina Evans, welcome to Keeping Track. We're so excited to talk to you. I know all three of us know you in some capacity. It's just me talking to you today, but I'm excited to dive in. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Um, fan, fans, of, I'm a fan of all of you. And of course, uh, we have, you know, over the last couple of decades, you know, been able to watch, um, watch you guys progress as athletes and in your lives and in your various uh, advocacy and career paths. Um, during running and after. So it's exciting to see 
um, all that come about. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk about whatever, you know, whatever, whatever we get to along the course of this, this conversation. I know you've had an exciting life, Dina. So like it could go in many directions, <laughs> but I just think you're, your coaching career is so interesting and like I'm sure you have a lot of valuable insights for women that want to want to get into coaching or anyone that wants to get into coaching and it, it spans college and professional and USATF coaching at these trips which I think is really interesting um so we could start wherever you want but I figure if you could give people some background on yourself um kind of where you came from as an athlete and how you got into coaching I think that would be interesting just to give some context there Sure. Um, I grew up in a suburb just outside of Seattle, um, and uh, I grew up playing a lot of different sports. I definitely don't think I considered myself a runner specifically until probably, you know, maybe after I had kids, I kind of still considered myself just an athlete who happened to participate in running track and field um, primarily. Um, I've talked a little bit about this on some other places, so I hope if we have some of the same listenership here, I won't be boring people, but um, you know, one of my main influences uh, early on was um, an alternative PE program that I experienced in middle school, where we did a bunch of um, different challenges, including running a half marathon. Um, we would walk around Lake Washington, which is 55 miles around. So we'd do that in 22 hours in one day, or we, um, I didn't always participate in some of these things because I was playing soccer on the weekends and things like that. But our teacher would take kids cross country on bicycles in the summer, you know, we would uh, walk up stilts, walk up, walk up a, a three quarter mile hill on stilts, you know, to take people into the wilderness on hikes and do a survival overnight thing. Um, and just any number of crazy experiences. And all those experiences kind of taught me a couple of things, um, you know, in particular, one of which was um, just being really confident in your ability to finish something. So physically, so uh, she was really not a fan of walking, which sounds kind of harsh, but I think it's kind of the mentality that like, even if you were going a very, very, very slow jog on the things that we we're doing that we're running, um, it didn't matter how quickly you were going, it was just the persistence piece and sticking with something. So looking at um, whether it was workouts or eventually in my adult life, kind of doing marathons and things like that as a recreational runner. Um, I would always have the perspective of kind of how versus if, um, which is a helpful perspective to take, you know, to, to look at your athletics from, um, because I had had that ingrained that like, you know, if you just stuck with something that you probably could get to the, to the end of it one way or the other. And the other thing that she um, really brought home to us was, you know, the, the collective amongst, amongst an individual sport. So it was a really big deal if you were doing like an out and back to always, you know, slap people high five and say good job as you were coming back on them. Or, you know, if there was a, a long thing and there were different turns in the path or in the road, you know, there was no Google maps, nobody, there was no phones, you know, so you had to kind of wait for the person behind you to be able to see where the next turn was on a particular route and just kind of that uh, responsibility for others. Um, piece, I think, is something that's not always um, really nurtured in an individual sport. So that uh, was a significant piece of the puzzle, I think, for me that I carried into my future athletic involvement. Um, in high school, I couldn't be bothered to do cross country or do even the two mile track. I, I was like, after doing all these really long things in middle school, I just was like, definitely 
half mile or a mile, you know, around the mile, around the four by four um, and played uh, soccer and basketball. Um, after, and then I did two of those sports um, in college where I was at Stanford in the early nineties. And um, I did, I ended up going to grad school in education. Um, my initial career path was as a middle school teacher. And um, during that, my grad year, I was working part-time in the track office um, doing, you know, snow fence at the cross country invitational and like, you know, all the, the fun jobs that <laughs> no one wants to do. I was like, I will never coach. This is terrible. This is so hard. All these, this is, just, you know, um, but I'll spare us all the details, but somehow in like, just like a couple of years later, I ended up doing exactly that. Um, and, uh, but I was pretty fresh off the boat in terms of, you know, it's not like I'd gotten been to a bunch of level ones and, you know, had all this, you know, did a, you know, a degree in sports science of some kind or something like that, you know. So um, as I started coaching, um, trying to be cognizant of the fact that, of what I had to offer and what I couldn't offer, I think I tried to approach it from the perspective of what I could offer, which was trying to know the athletes and work positively with the athletes to get the best out of them. You know, I still am not a scientist. I still am not a, you know, some sort of lab person you know, taking, you know, pricks of blood lactate every, you know, two miles, things like that. That's not um, ever going to be an area where I'm going to have my most strength or my, you know, my strongest contributions there. But um, I try to coach people and, uh, you know, for the last 23 years, um, running has been the the vehicle for that effort, I guess, in, in a variety of different forms. Um, Initially, it was at it was at Stanford for several years, and, um, and after I had both my kids, and we could talk about you know the whys and hows there. Um, I stepped away from that, but that evolved into just you know a, a variety of really interesting career, like semi career paths and things I got myself into, um, and eventually uh, I co-founded the club that's now 15 years old. We've had a bunch of different names because uh, we've had different partners. Um, but I work with them. That's mostly uh, a group of post-collegiate athletes who live here in the Bay Area. Um, and uh, but I also work with athletes remotely, like you said. Uh, occasionally, high school students. I try to not do a lot of working with high school kids during season because I want them to to lean into their high school experiences. But occasionally, like winter or summer or things like that. Um, and uh, and you know, some middle-aged triathletes who probably would take offense to that. Uh, mm -hmm. characterization but you know um but I enjoy all of it and um I enjoy running a lot still so you'll see me out there doing the occasional marathon and um and as I just told Molly before we started this recording my youngest is going off to college on Monday so um having an existential crisis but other <laughs> <And> than that <laughs> she's a really good soccer player just you know Dina I know you played soccer and you ran while you were at Stanford mm -hmm. so your daughter you, did you coach your daughters at all when they were growing up so yeah my husband and I both did you know he um actually he played football at Stanford but originally he was a soccer player and um the story goes he you know he didn't I think it's like it was freshman year or something he didn't make varsity of soccer and so he kind of was unhappy about that. So I went out for football instead, which turned out to be a very good choice on his part um, in terms of the opportunities that it provided for him in the end. Um, but so he grew up playing soccer. His family's from Trinidad and Caribbean um, environment there. Soccer's pretty, uh, you know, is what a lot of people do. And I certainly grew up 
um, playing soccer from as young an age as we could. For me, that was fourth grade. Um, and I think both my kids, by the time they were in fourth grade, had probably played more soccer games than I ever have in my life, you know, because they could start at age four. So we did, we definitely coached AYSO the first few years. We, you know, we coached YMCA basketball. We coached, I coached some school basketball. I coached school cross country. My kids, neither of them um, were particularly into cross country or track, you know, which that would have been fun, but um, they both did cross country in part because I was doing that after school and what were they going to do? Um, uh, but, uh, they participated in that and, you know, so, uh, they did swimming, neither my husband and I are, are <laughs> gifted in that area. So, but yeah, so both my kids, my eldest is a rising junior at 10, um, playing soccer there and, um, you know, having a great experience overall educationally and otherwise. And, um, my younger one is going to be a freshman at Stanford. And, um, of course that's, that's kind of cool. Um, cause we have, a lot of, um, you know, we think we're the first mother daughter to, to be a part of that program, but oh, I don't cool. know if we know for sure. That is cool. Um, so I know mostly it's what, yeah. Yeah. You Go don't, ahead. you don't like to brag much, but everyone, um, Dina's daughter was the Gatorade player of the year for soccer for the state of California. So she's very good. <laughs> and, um, you also like one, like your team when you were at Stanford was very good. Like, you ha I don't know how many NCAA championships the girls won when you were coaching, but it was you were women's coach of the year one of the years. So I definitely want to go back and talk about that time period of, you know, you didn't have a high level career as a runner, but you were a high level coach as a runner, and you also did it while you were managing your young family. So that's a topic a lot of, that's come up with a lot of my friends who are now just in coaching and kind of struggling, honestly, to like yeah. have balance the family years. And I think that's a really big topic for keeping women in the sport, in the coaching world and climbing the ranks in the coaching world. So I love to dive into that. If you have, sure. you know, what is your experience like? And I know it was probably not as much talked about back then as it is now. That's for sure. Um, literally when I was pregnant the first time, I went into our HR department and, and then kind of closed the door behind me. I think it was like a safe distance. It was like four months or, you know, three, whatever, like the usual time you kind of start telling people. Um, and I'd been sick as a dog the first few weeks. So like, you know, everybody in my immediate, you know, in the, in the track staff knew, the kids knew, cause I was, you know, all of a sudden I was running, running every day. And then all of a sudden I was just like nothing. So I was just like horrifically sick. But um, when it finally came time to kind of talk about like the nuts and bolts of this, I went into our HR office and I was like, so, I'm pregnant. Like what happens now? And he like literally did not have an answer. Like was like going up to some binder on the shelf and like, like, okay, like what do we do now? Um, so other than having like a, an amazing baby shower, because everybody was so generous and excited because not, there weren't a lot of people, coaches having babies. <laughs> um, it was a little bit the wild west and it remained so even with my second daughter, um, you know, very fortunate to have good people to work with. Um, who were generous, but, you know, even with like their good intentions, can't, you know, can't solve for X on all of these things. Um, and I think that, and I've said many times publicly, and I'll say it again, I think that, you know, the NCAA in many ways is not an organization that was constructed with a good anticipation of what modern day life looks like. We know this in terms of student athlete rights and things like that, but also, um, 
in terms of the way they value labor, you know, there's only a certain amount of bodies you can hire at any one time to coach uh, the track and field team or, you know, different things like that. And that doesn't necessarily work. People, I know they've made some modifications to those things where you can swap in some people for a time a little bit, but um, those are kind of, there's, there's some big structural challenges there that were hard to, hard to deal with. And I still think are hard for, um, for coaches now, certain institutions um, like Stanford, at least at the time, um, we didn't have vacation time. It was just like, like a professor, you just kind of were expected to get your work done, you know, and as long as you got your work done, you could kind of a little bit kind of pop in, pop out. Lots of, lots of startups around here like that these days. And while that provides you a little bit of freedom, what we know from if you're coaching top level cross country and track, you are booked in the fall with a bunch of really unmovable dates. The conference meet, the regional meet, the national meet, they're all, you know, pre-nationals or whatever the, the you know, the substitute is for that these days. You can't move those dates. You can't do anything about them. They just exist. Indoors, similar deal. Like there's immovable dates um, and a lot of travel, usually outdoors, same thing. And then the whole point of all of that is to hopefully have like athletes performing well. And if your athletes are performing really well, you know what you get to do, you get to then take them to USA's or to juniors. And then you have the privilege to recruit, you know, to go visit Molly Huddle in Elmira, New York in the middle of the, you know, Mm -hmm. middle of whatever. Dina's been to my house, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And I was trying to, and I will, yeah. In the midst of trying to convince you that it wasn't that far to come to Stanford. By the time I got to your house, I was like, oh, dang. You're like, this is about (laughs) full disclosure. I would have gone if my parents, I think I would have gone to Stanford if my parents weren't very worried about the trek. But well, I know. Yeah, yeah. that's a that's a that's for next week's podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I loved you and I loved the team. The team was so good. So it was a big draw. But yeah, for sure. And, and you and you I I uh, I've so I told the story a few times about how I came to visit. I was like, I knew she was going to be good. Like I was 100 <laughs> percent positive she was going to be good. <laughs> so anyway, I gave it a go. Um, but uh <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so there's a lot of removable objects in the track and field year um, for a coach. Some sports, I mean, all sports are rigorous, obviously, if you're going to try to compete at the Division One level at a high level. And especially at that time, um, you know, we were taking a big swing as a team at everything. We wanted to win everything. We wanted to get every top recruit. We wanted to be at all the top meets, you know. And so everything was like capital B, capital D, big deal, um, which meant there was just not a lot of respite for, for you know, in your 365-day year. And, um, and plus as a distance coach, you know, you, your events are oftentimes at night, you know, my, um, I remember when NCAA is my dad came because my husband had to be away for his own work travel. And like, you know, my dad's like looking after the kids. It's like, it's, you know, these races are at nine, 10 o'clock at night. Um, you know, sometimes babies need care and feeding at nine, 10 o'clock at night, you know, and it's just a, a little bit of a tricky time to be gone all the time and also very much expensive we spent we you know spent a lot of effort and time um you know we go to pen relays and my in-laws would come up from maryland and like you know we get them a room in the hotel like all of that required like a lot of efforting you know mm-hmm. fly people in for different things or just you know i had i had one babysitter at one point this is actually she was maybe after well anyway you know i had somebody who would come who would be able to come over like really early in the morning 
you know, like, so I was like, I had one person who was like a really early morning person, you know, who was like willing to do it and different people for different things. And, um, you know, when my, uh, my mother-in-law, you know, stayed with us for several months after my second one was born and, um, and, you know, uh, Sarah Hall and Ryan to a certain extent, because he was going everywhere Sarah was going in those days, you know, she, you know, her close relationship with my family really blossomed during that time that she really, she spent a lot of time looking after, um, my younger one, Elise, when she was a senior and I think was kind of didn't have as many classes and was able to do a lot of babysitting for her. Um, and Anita Saraki did a lot of that too for us as well. And, and with my older one, um, Sally Glenn Hauser did a lot of that for her. Um, you know, we had like, it's a long history. I mean, in talking to, um, you know, so Marisa Powell, who, you know, obviously the coach at Washington and a good friend and a woman who was obviously at Stanford on the team when I was coaching there as well. Um, you know, she had like, we were kind of going through it. Um, so Steph Bruce, when she was Steph Rothstein, babysat for Marisa, I think mm-hmm. like, like we have this like whole, like kind of, you know, like lineage of people like down the line who have like babysat for other people and now have kids and like other people are babysitting for them. And um, so I think there's, a lot of history of people just figuring it out with the people they have around to help them. And, um, you know, while that's as old as that's a story as old as time for, I think women in, mm-hmm. in a variety of industries, um, just cobbling together I, their own network. Yeah. yeah. Just piecing it together. It is really tiring mm-hmm. to do that as I'm sure you're figuring out. And, um, it's really exhausting and we need to figure out ways, um, in which, to make it so it's not so exhausting. And I think part of that is to start to normalize the idea that families are a feature and not a bug. You know, when you have the NCAA tournament in basketball saying you, um, like we're gonna count this infant as an extra person and now you maybe can't bring them to the bubble for the final four, whatever that was, when um, the Arizona coach had a newborn and was, you know, what was she gonna do, you know? it's like this, oh my goodness, like you want to bring this extra person and like this person might need care. Like you got to start, instead of asking people to opt in to that and have to say like, to raise their hand and be like, I actually need help with um, this aspect of my lives. I think we need to assume, because there's lots of men who should be doing a lot of primary child rearing as well. You know, you never like to hear when guys say I got a babysitter for my kids, you're like, no, dude, that's your DNA. You're not babysitting, it's your DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, and when you see uh, a lot of male coaches not having this issue, it's because someone at home is picking up the slack, usually absolutely. the women. And it's just when the woman is coaching, it's like, well, who's going to watch your baby? And it's like, that's what we need to sort of work yeah. on. <laughs> but a lot of men, I think, are are not, you know, I think a lot of men these days are good parents mm-hmm. and don't want to be always away from their kids as well yeah. and accommodations and who knows what's going on in that family it's not for us to say we need to have like a default being accommodations and work back from there so it's mm-hmm. not like you have to raise your hand and like be the squeaky wheel mm-hmm. and ask for things even at um you know there is the, the life on twitter i not affected by this personally i didn't flag it initially but there weren't any lactation rooms or like there weren't a lot of changing tables at, at Worlds. And um, I, I saw one of, again, one of the um, uh, former Stanford athletes who also ran for our club a little bit, who has a newborn and she was like standing up on the con- concourse, you know, breastfeeding and like having a conversation with us. And I was like, this is, shouldn't be, 
this is this is all wrong you know yeah um, it, it could be easier it could be built in to more plans definitely more yeah. thought about more it, we need to make it the, the default mm -hmm. rather than and I know that you have to opt in you're right there are a lot of dads who struggle especially in coaching distance in the NCAA division one level with being away from their family like I know some men who've left because they had mm -hmm. kids and some good coaches who are struggling with it but I think it does fall a lot more onto the women and I wonder if that is a hurdle like the stats from the um I forget what the department is at Minnesota that does a lot of the like women in sports mm -hmm. stats, yeah. but it, the Tucker Center, yeah. the Tucker Center, one of the stats for the breakdown in um, the lack of female coaches in the NCAA, they have the numbers for cross country, and it's actually one of we got a, a grade D for um, number of women in head coaching positions, and I wonder if some of that is just it's so rigorous being a distance coach, like you have the fall, the indoor, the outdoor, the postseason, and then you start recruiting for like that few weeks that are left. So um, it's definitely one of the sports that's hit hard, I think, by the family, like lack of family support. Absolutely. And I think that um, what we want to do also is to, uh, and I think it's good that the Tucker Center kind of does this delineation, but I see this in some places too. We're not talking about all jobs. If you want to take a part-time job um, at a Division three institution that doesn't travel a lot, that's a different thing than taking a Power 5 job with a leadership potential and career longevity and a salary that's going to allow you to sustain yourself and be in the sport. Um, those are the jobs that we need to have more females being able to, to do. There are always, always going to be jobs at the bottom rung that you can get mm -hmm. and like aren't that aren't going to probably probably provide you a pathway towards being a leader in the sport, but we need to make sure that, that everybody who is, if you have the capability and the aptitude and you are strong and you're going to, you're, um, you know, in order to advance the sport, we want really good people continuing to bubble to the top who mm -hmm. are good coaches, good technicians, good, um, you know, good leaders of men and good leaders of women want them to continue to bubble the top and we need to not have these things be the reason why they are not able to impact as many people as they would otherwise. And that means that you have to have that big institutional support for the big jobs. Yes. Um, you know, like you talk about Pat Summit at Tennessee, being able to fly a private jet, you know, back from her recruiting story when she was giving birth, she like flew back, you know, like while she was having contractions. Well, you know, if that had been me and I was in Elmira, New York, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't have been to say there was no, no private jet come to pick me up at the nope. Binghamton airport take nope. me to, <laughs> you know so um and that's from a school that has plenty of resources at Stanford, mm -hmm. that's know? Stanford yeah so, you're right yeah um is is the reason you left so how long did you coach with your girls and is that the reason you eventually left just better family balance well I think that uh, balance is a kind of a tricky word um because I think balance is something you find in the, the head of a pin and like, it's impossible to maintain. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's fundamentally something that's going to, you know, tip. So I think it's more a question. Um, there's some uh, famous thinkers in this area who, who talk about dual agendas and that's kind of what would I think of like two tracks, you know, you've got your family track and you've got your career track. And ideally those paths are able to kind of move in parallel together. Um, and sometimes they aren't, I think for me, uh, I, did not, a couple of things were happening at the time that I stepped away from there. One, I had very, I had supportive administrators, but they weren't able to, you know, our athletic director, Ted Leland, he'd known me since I was 17. He was a track guy. 
he was friend, he he had hired Vin at Dartmouth like back you know so like he would come up to Mammoth with us like you know even when I was on the team like so and I was a bit of a rabble rouser when I was in school that will come as no surprise so like you know he knew me well and was very supportive but I don't think could really completely empathize with what my day-to-day life was like and our sport administrator similar thing like they were like you know I think they were willing to I mean, I was getting compensated fairly, you know, like I wasn't, it's not like I was making $5,000 a year or something like that. Like I was had a, a fair uh, salary and was, you know, um, doing as well as anybody could, you know, we had a good program and we were doing well. So like I had the commensurate salary and stuff at that time, but um, it was more, we also had a structure in the, in the office at the same time where we had like a head cross country men's and women's and the head track men's and women's and that was a little bit of a challenge because it was like a really flat leadership structure so it's hard within that to necessarily mix and match um and that was uh so that was a challenge not anybody's fault or anything like that it was just like the way we had it set up for specific reasons but in this case i don't think it was necessarily an asset um and I just didn't looking ahead because of those reasons I was talking about, I didn't, I didn't see a pathway how it was going to necessarily change. You know, I would have liked to see it be different, but it's something that I've been, you know, considering for a while and, and in dialogue with our administrators for a while and just um, got to a point where it just like, it just, I did not see a pathway. The other thing was, is that our team was really stacked and all healthy. And, um, you know, that, that group went on to win, I think at least two, three more NCAA titles and cross with Peter. And, um, so I knew I was leaving the cupboard stock because ultimately like I'm a Stanford alum, like I wanted, you know, my principal concern was leaving the place better than I found it. And so I felt, um, I felt good about that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like if I was going to leave while well, personally sad for me and, you know, hard phone calls to make to all the girls, um, I felt like they were well positioned for continued success. If I was given the custodianship of their four or five years in school um, as athletes, their chance to have this college athletics experience, I felt like they were going to be still positioned to, to, you know, have some positive outcomes um, Mm -hmm. those subsequent years. So um, those are kind of some of the factors that, that led into it. Um, But uh, you know, and um, and I was like, you know, you know, one time I, <laughs> it was like that summer, early that summer, I came to his office. He's like, I know that you're sitting by the t- back that you're sitting here. I know you really are going, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so he encouraged me to write like a white paper about what could be done differently in this area, which, and then unfortunately he left. And so the subsequent uh, athletic director, you know, was like, I'm mean, for, you know, when I actually gave it to him. But um, so, you know, I, I did plenty of thinking about, these issues. And, um, you know, in the years since, even though I'm not in the call drinks, uh, uh, I've tried to, to be, um, a flexible ear or a little bit, you know, try to help where I can. Um, you know, it's, it's meaningful to me to see women continue to ascend and it, you know, it gives me no shortage of enjoyment to see, especially, you know, women that, that I've coached, you know, continue to progress in this area. That's like super encouraging. Um, and ultimately, you know, looking back on it, I've, um, I'm still coaching people, like a lot of people. <laughs> yes, I'm still trying to make a difference just in a different way, you know. Um, and several people, like when we started the club, um, you know, we, I've had definitely many people, not many, but 
several people who um, I tried hard to recruit when they were in high school and they went elsewhere for undergrad, but came to Stanford for grad school and I got to coach them anyway. So that's fun. <laughs> that is fun. Do you want to talk a little bit about Strava Track Club and well now Peninsula Track Club or Peninsula yeah, so, Distance? Yeah. So when we were, um, uh, so we had, I was doing a variety of different things and um, uh, a woman that I had known, she was a couple years ahead of me at, at Stanford. She played volleyball, but I, my roommate was a volleyball player. So I hung out with a lot of volleyball girls. So I knew her from that. We attended the same church and she came to me in the parking lot and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about kind of getting into competitive running. Would you be willing to coach me? And I was like, sure. You know, love a project. And um, so uh, we eventually, she, she was 35, I think at the time. And then ran, I think, 427 and 50 for 1500 that year, which is like pretty good, like kind of not having done that stuff before. Um, and at that time, there was, you know, the USATF Club National Meet was something that was happening, like was an icon, I think, that year. And um, I was like, this is actually the perfect meet for you. It's probably going to be one like, you know, 423, 420, you know, like this would be a great meet for you to kind of end your season on. Um, but we need to be a club. <laughs> so we just, <laughs> we kind of made up a name and paid 75 bucks and became a club. But at the same time, um, you know, we'd had, a, by that time, we had maybe a little group of women that are kind of working out together once a week. And, um, uh, so, and I talked to, I'd, I'd been doing a couple different other things. So um, I talked to people here and there and um, had a woman at Brooks who I'd known she'd run in Oregon when I was in school. She kind of connected us with, I think it was Jesse Williams back at those days. Um, for like a little bit a little bit of help for brooks so we were pdc brooks for a few years and then when josh Rowe came over to new balance um we i had known him from the snow fence at the cross country meet days when i was in Stanford. he was with nike um and we partnered with new balance for, for several years we were in new balance silicon valley and then uh, strava you know it was a very um obviously bay area born startup um just getting into running at that point you know from cycling and um, so we partnered with them for, I think, five years again also. And then um, we've had a cryptocurrency startup as a lead sponsor, but we kept our name. So we originally PDC and we've still we have just returned to PDC. And um, was, but it's a, is the support you received from those companies? Was it just kind of like travel and gear or like how like what kind of support were they like providing for you guys? Well, it's very through the years. I mean, financial support is always the best support. So as much as we can have of that is is great. Um, you know, the shoe companies obviously were able to do that. We had a year um, when Nicole Freitag was at On, where we were with On Shoes, but we still kept our name. Um, you know, going through some of those experiences and kind of seeing the journey that many of you guys have been on, um, I've kind of evolved in my thinking on some of these things. You know, currently we're partnered with Tracksmiths for Apparel, and they've been great. Um, most of our athletes, um, all of our athletes, are working or in school. And that's because, you know, we're in the Bay Area. I don't recruit at all. People call me up and say, hey, I told them I got this job at Facebook, or I got this job at Facebook and my college folks told me I should call you. You know, like that's like, that's what's happening. Like as we speak right now, this summer, that's the call they'll get. Um, because it's really expensive to be around here. Like you have to have another reason to be here. Occasionally I'll get notes from people saying, you know, tell me about the club, I'll move there. And I'm like, don't move here. You know, like, <laughs> unless you have another reason. Yeah. You know? And, Don't change uh, your life. Another, <laughs> well, it's just that you want to be like, none of this works unless it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, 
if you move here and I've seen other clubs, like, you know, the gags version of the farm team, they were well, well supported, you know, mm-hmm. but there were definitely some people who moved here who I think were like, what am I doing here? Like it was, they were never going to really probably stay long-term. It was really mm-hmm. difficult financially to make that, make it go of it here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we get people who grew up here and are coming back who are in school here, who have a job here or some, you know, oftentimes it's like my partner is just matched for residency at UCSF or Stanford, you know, so like I'm here now for the next four years. Mm-hmm. So you have to have kind of another reason to be around here. Um, and we work with the people that are here. And oftentimes those are, I mean, we have an amazing group of individuals um, and, you know, we try to compete, you know, really well regionally and occasionally nationally and occasionally internationally. So it's, it's been a, they're, they're, the, the PDC folks are like a really, um, have evolved, particularly during the pandemic when it was kind of one of the only things you could do socially, I think mm-hmm. for a lot of them, you know, um, it's a really neat group of folks. I'm really pleased with the people that we've, that I've been able to work with through then through that uh, mm-hmm. club we have. Um, but because we kind of started from scratch, there's all sorts of idiosyncratic things that about it, um, including kind of what, back to what we were talking about with the sponsorship. Um, you know, if you're not getting paid a lot individually to, um, to do something, it may make sense to just not do it in order to have the freedom to do what's best for you. So sometimes in the, you know, we'd get, um, with some of our, uh, partners, we would, you know, there'd be a boilerplate contract that reflected maybe what they, like what you might get from one of your, um, commercial partners. And they would talk about a lot about exclusivity and stuff like that. And, you know, if you don't have, you're not in a situation where if they're not going to, if they're not able, if we're not at a level where they're giving us seven sports bras per week, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make people wear every single piece of clothing of that brand at six mm-hmm. in the morning. You know, like if you want us to do that, give us all that stuff and we'll do it. But if you're not going to give us, then we'll just, we'll just craft the contract to match what we are going to do, which might be exclusivity and competition, for example, versus like training and competition, you know, and just kind mm-hmm. of tweaking it like that. Um, and then with shoes, you know, what I learned after trying, you know, chasing after people for different shoes, unless the shoes are really accessible to all, or like it's a range that has something for, for every runner. Um, and there's some companies that can't provide that breadth, but some companies don't necessarily have that um, option and, and, or we may not be in a position where we've negotiated a contract that's going to allow us to have that type of um advantage, then I'd rather just have people be able to wear the shoes that they feel like work best for them. Um, you know, and so ultimately I want the athlete's best interests to be the first thing that we think about, mm-hmm. you know, because you're coaching a bulk of your athletes are in that sort of in-between space of like, they're serious mm-hmm. athletes. They're PRing. A lot of them are, you know, some of them are qualifying for USA's, but it's not their profession. They still work. They still have a lot going on on the side. Mm-hmm. So it is hard. That support piece is like sometimes more restrictive than it is helpful. And so it can be tough right. to advise them on that. Yeah, we have a, we have athletes exactly. here from your group with Mad, or who that you coach, Maddie Bergson, mm-hmm. Casey mm-hmm. running around, and um, Caitlin Goodman for a while. You were coaching yep. long distance. Mm-hmm. So definitely have talked to them. Um, yeah. It's – those groups are great. They're kind of between professional group and like recreational fun run track club. But you made a comment. I want to talk about the comment on Twitter that you made. um, I think it was a few weeks ago in response to an article about, so we have 16 ish pro groups in the U S 
not much diversity in coaching of these pro groups as far as women on staff or people of color on staff. Um, and you mentioned this, there was an article written about it. It would be a great discussion to engage a female coach or a coach <laughs> that is a person of color in this article. I definitely want to talk to you about this. Um, what do you think is, is the reason for this lack of diversity? And of course, it's something we need to like push forward, push the needle on. Yeah, so I think that there's some awareness of this amongst the companies because you'll see like, uh, you know, it's nice to see Amy Craig out there coaching with the Puma Group mm-hmm. um, or what I'm not sure exactly what their name is, but, um, you know, there's some involvement, uh, you know, Brooks hired Julie Cully in a role marketing there, you know, just to name a couple of examples of some some folks in some places that we may not necessarily have um you know the under armor group mm-hmm. had shayla Houlihan there when they were for a while um you know shalane is working with bowerman and things like that so like bits and pieces i think people are recognizing that it would be good to have uh, you know some of this but i think ultimately um we and i talked to by the way so aaron strout and i actually had a long conversation about this we did get together and talk for a long time about this afterwards um but uh my thoughts on all this. So I think that we have a pretty, like human nature, we like people that we're comfortable with. We like things that we think that look familiar to us. And I think there's a little bit of a closed system mm-hmm. in, in that industry. Pulling from like have, shallow networks kind of, kind of a thing. Shallow networks, yeah. yeah. And part of the issue is a fundamental problem where we've got this pie that's only divided up, like a certain size pie divided up only a certain number of ways between these two companies. We've decided with nobody forcing us that we're going to differentiate pro or non-pro by whether or not you signed a marketing endorsement contract with one of these shoe companies. I really don't like that word pro a ton because, you know, if somebody's on shoes and three grand from a company, are they really a pro versus somebody who's excelling well, mm-hmm. but just doesn't happen to have um an endorsement marketing contract mm-hmm. with a shoe company. They might or have support in other ways. If someone's making the final at the world championships, but doesn't have a contract, are they a pro? Like that is a exactly interesting term. <laughs> We've backed ourselves into this. And so there's a lot of demand for these contracts and those the companies obviously know it. Um, and I think that when they're making decisions on both who to sign and who to lead these groups, it's kind of become a little bit of a flavor now the last 10, 15 years to have a group you know, and to mm-hmm. put, invest into a group instead of investing into individuals. We want them to all be in one place and we can just put a bunch of funds into there. I think that um, that's a little, become very fashionable and productive in some cases, for sure. Um, I'm not going to doubt that it isn't. Um, and so when you're doing that, you want people who can, um, you're turning to people who you, you're doing something maybe that your company hasn't done before. You want to go with somebody that you know or feel comfortable with. And, um, and I don't think necessarily the companies, I don't think they're that into the weeds on exactly all the the details of the coaching. They just want it to be productive, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, if somebody has, you know, a lot of experience in the sport and sounds like they would be able to both attract athletes and know what they're talking about, that's, it's going to be hard to really open that up to a broader hiring process when you feel like you have somebody right in front of you. Oftentimes that person may be a person who's really experienced as an athlete, but maybe um, hasn't spent as much time in coaching. And sometimes that person can be a really great coach, you know, but what it has resulted in is a, is a fairly homogenous group of marketing directors mm-hmm. and agents 
and lead coaches for these groups. Um, kind of like it's a kind of a self-perpetuating type of insularity. And my main issue with that is not to say that there's not productivity or even excellence among those coaches. There's a lot of really excellent coaches within these groups, you know, uh, building better mousetraps and making people run fast. Um, but I think that if we are to be the sport that we want to be, we want to, one, not just keep dividing up the same pie into different slices. We need to broaden the pie. So we need to look at ways that we can generally um, have more stakeholders rather than the same stakeholders just fighting over the same territory. And we also need to broaden the idea pool. Um, we are probably missing out on mm -hmm. some innovation and some ideas um, by having such a homogenous, anytime you have a homogenous anything, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have, you're going to miss out on, you know, if you have a, you just sit down to like, you know, some bread with nothing on it, you know, like after a while, you're going to be like, bread's getting a little, you know, yeah. the same bread every day. Like, or just a collection. <laughs> yeah. A collection of people with yeah. all the same blind spots are going to be missing all the same big areas that they could dive into. So, yeah, totally. Sure. And I, and I don't want to paint all those guys with the same brush because they, you know, but they, like I said, some there's some great coaching going on mm -hmm. out there. We're like we've seen some some great performances out of these groups. So, but I think just because there's potential excellence going on there, it doesn't mean that we aren't still missing out on what the potential of mm -hmm. the, the system could provide, both mm -hmm. in terms of like ideas of ways to get the best athletes to the top of the top of the pyramid, and also how to continue to to grow our sport. So that's my concern. Is mm -hmm. that um, but the thing that seems safe may also be the thing that limits us. And mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, we've got some pretty rock solid research in the corporate world on the benefits of having diverse boards um, and the, uh, you know, the better profitability, for example, of companies that have more than 20% of women amongst their board, um, diverse uh Diverse voices in leadership yields results, mm -hmm. and um, and I think that that is true in a lot of places. And there's no reason why it isn't true here in track and field. Um, I think that there are what I would call our high performance distance running community, rather than probably like the word high performance, um, is a little bit behind on that front. And I do think there's some awareness, but I think there's a lot of growth that needs to happen. And I think one of the ways that you do that is reaching out and talking to people who might have these different viewpoints and um, bringing, you know, bringing those ideas into the thinking um, rather than just perpetuating the same closed system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point so. that a lot of the times those hires, they reflect what the marketing department looks like, you know, they're dipping into their friend pool, their associate, mm -hmm. their, you know, people in their inner circle. So definitely a good good point to make. Um, so Dina, we're kind of wrapping up our hour. Do you, mm. do you have advice for women wanting to get into coaching in the NCAA level or beyond um, being what I would consider a master level coach at this point? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so I think one of the things that I was really uncomfortable with early on, but I think has served me well, um, is um, throwing yourself into leadership positions. Um, 
I was annoyed at him at the time, but when I, the very first year I went on as an assistant, um, then like made me like, I think it was because all these guys had already done this in the, in the room when they were looking for fresh blood, which I was. Um, but I ended up being like, I'd literally been on the job for like two months and suddenly I found myself with the West region rep for the, you know, the cross country coaches association going to like the, you know, the national committee meetings. And um, so that I was like, what am I, I don't know what I'm doing here, but, um, but it allowed me to, as a, as an example of a pathway to making relationships with a bunch of experienced coaches. And that's been crucial. That type of like just stepping out not necessarily being feeling like you have the complete resume perfectly laid out to be able to go for something, go for it, back yourself, um, and and take a step a step out in faith because you might find yourself in a place that maybe you don't know everything, but you're going to be forced to ask for help and get some advice, and you're going to make relationships that will then prove um, really useful. You know, there's a lot of coaches that I learned during those first I met during those first few years and got to know who I still am in contact all the time. And those are the people that you can call like, Hey, is that 3000 on January 30th? Is it going to be good? Or like, mm-hmm. do you have anybody running the 1500 um, this weekend? Or, you know, the way that you, it's obviously, I mean, running is very simple. Um, it's just the stuff that we, it's manipulating all the other factors around it that we get the results that we want. Right. So you have to kind of um, build out those relationships. So my first thing is don't be afraid to step out for like a leadership position or something that you feel like you might not be quite prepared for. And the other thing I would, I would say is um, in talking to so many female coaches, um, you know, specifically about this type of stuff, so many are have experience now and are willing um, to help. So ask for help, you know, ask advice. Um, the U.S. TF CCCCCCA or whatever that is. All the C's. <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, no, the Collegiate Coaching Association. They have a um, they have a mentorship program mm-hmm. you can get involved in. Um, there are now things that did not exist in my time. Things like the Women's Coaching Academy from the NCAA. I, I don't necessarily know too much about that. Even just going to your local level one for a USATF um, coaching education course and just just reaching out and talking to people and getting some names of people that you can then go back and call for some, for some help. I know a lot of people are just, you know, very happy to help with um, advice. You know, maybe it's everything from, cause you know, there's all sorts of different things. It might be, I have someone who's really struggling with an eating disorder and like, I'm not sure how to, you know, go about this and um, how to involve like the right people to help this person. And, or I'm, um, I got somebody and I cannot get them to kick the last lap, you know, every time it's a disaster, like what workouts would be used to kind of help somebody develop their kick or, you know, I, gosh, I, I, my summer workouts, we end up coming up, coming into preseason a little bit too banked up. Like, how can I tweak those? You know, people, um, nobody, I think I went through the first few years thinking that I would like, when I would blow it, that like, uh, so embarrassing because like nobody else has ever, made a mistake and then I realized that like everybody's had fallow periods you know Mm -hmm. difficult clusters of injuries or just times when the results didn't come together it's just nobody just like kind of the you know the kids now these days on Instagram nobody talks about it when you're having a nightmare for for a few months nobody's like I'm having a nightmare (laughs) but everybody's had these time periods and so if you if you reach out to people um you know they can oftentimes share those 
you know, how they've gotten themselves out of those periods. And maybe it'll save you from making the same mistake. You'll make another mistake later, but maybe it'll save you from making that particular mistake. And um, so be vulnerable and be willing to ask questions and then also not being afraid to jump into things, even if you only feel like you're a little bit medium rare and mm -hmm. you're not quite cooked, but, um, but you'll figure it out. Yeah. Great advice. Um, and I don't want to gloss over this, like, we could do a whole podcast mm -hmm. about your USATF coaching, um, like trips and all the teams we that could. you have been a coach on, but I do want to talk a little bit about the most recent one in Eugene. Yeah. Um, what an amazing like outcome it was. It was such an exciting meet to watch. And you were there as the assistant men's distance coach officially. Mm -hmm. Is that, that's the title you had. So can you talk about how you get into something like that and kind of what you do during that two week period? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a great it's a great question and a, and a mystery to many. Yes. Um, so because <laughs> uh, coaches, coaches, um, personal coaches come, but you are also there. Course, as a coach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you and I've been on a, a few teams, yes. I think, at yep. least through the year. So, Cross country, um, Dupa, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was trying to think back and I couldn't quite remember. But um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's an application that goes out every fall and you can uh, as long as you're on the coaches registry and all that stuff, you can fill it out and put yourself into the pool. And um, one of the things I'm, fa I'm fairly passionate about on this front is that the the deeper and the bigger pool we have of coaches, the better staff we will have and the better the athletes will be served. Um, you know, they, there is uh, a plug for some consistency, not to have just like a completely rotating cast of characters all the time. But again, we want to have the most robust process to have the best environment for the athletes to be able to do their best so if you know i encourage everybody to apply uh, when that comes out and but you kind of um there's various kind of criteria for advancing through certain things so sometimes it pays to be old um but my first one was um brussels 2004 cross country uh had the junior women and that one the cross country process was slightly different um because it comes out of the, that committee and um and Mike Scott, just who had known of me since high school, um, he was in the Seattle area at that time. Um, I think he'd kind of been keeping an eye on me and um, and sometime in 2003 had said like, hey, you know, like, I'm gonna, you know, kind of put your name in for this. And um, I didn't really have any idea. I always kind of wondered like, how do people get on those things? But um, so that's that was kind of an informal way that I got involved my first time when I was pretty young. Um, now we have a... a more of a, an application for cross country as well. Um, and a committee that sift through those. Unfortunately, we haven't had many teams to go on since 2020. Mm -hmm. So I have a little bit of a backlog of applicants. Um, but so I had the fortunate, good fortune to, to have some really great experiences doing a few cross country teams um, and was encouraged to uh, apply for track spots. And, uh, you know, Rose Monday, I think has been a, a great mentor for me, um, just encouraging me to, to keep applying for things. She and I um, worked together on the first World Relays team, I think in 2014, maybe. And um, she's somebody that I had gone to many, many times for just uh, informal advice, formal advice, <laughs> both kinds of advice. And also just sometimes, you know, you just want a rule clarified and she's, you know, the head of the Women's Track and Field Committee. So she often has the answers. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of this one, I, I was excited to see that they, you know, we've always had men coaching on women's staff. And I think there's been an um, expressed interest in trying to do the same we've had um a woman coach a men's u20 as a team of i think it was the pan u20s as a head coach 
Amy Bagley um, had the men and the women distance runners in at the Pan Am Games. Um, Ashley Kovacs has had the men throwers in Doha. So we've had a few. I'm probably skipping somebody, but we've we've had a few here and there. Um, and so uh, you know, I've I've coached men for like a, uh, a long time, 16 years or something. You know, so um, you know, they're just like a little box you check. So I just checked that box, and I was <laughs> I just I didn't necessarily think too much more about it just because it's uh, it's something that I'm doing every day. Um, but, you know, ultimately what happens on these trips um, are that athletes are selected and they're selected because they've run really well at U.S. championships. And most of the athletes who've run really well at U.S. championships have a good coach. Um, that Those two things usually go hand in hand. So obviously the personal coaches are doing all the heavy lifting with that. And your job as a staff coach is just to help create the environment where, where those things can happen as well as they can. So if it's, um, you know, a lot of stuff that we do on some of these trips for say like the marathoners and the race walkers, it's a lot to do with like the course stuff with like the fluids and the bottles and the, and some of that stuff, there's like a whole logistical piece, just trying to make sure that every, the information flow is there. Everybody, you know, is on the same page that we've staffed up to be able to, and we know, you know, ice hats and towels and whatever, you know, all that stuff is locked in. Um, and depending on the environment, say it was like the 3, 10 PM, 20 K race walk in Eugene. Yeah, why that was the case and um or like you know two in the morning in doha for the 50k race walker that you know mm -hmm. marathon so some of those are like pretty um you know get pretty granular in the planning for um for something that's going to be obviously physically challenging um no matter what um and then on the track uh you're really just you're really a coordinator for that event you're a point person so for the 20 men um we had from 800 meters to the marathon including the race walk you know um my job is basically like keep an eye on what's going on with them. You know, do they, where, where do they need to go to train? Are they, uh, do they have what they need? Uh, do they know where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be at? Because as you obviously well know, there's a lot of red tape at these things, call rooms. Mm -hmm. They don't really care about your feelings. You know, <laughs> they're going to close that call room and you have to make sure that, you know, it's easy when you're warming up and you're nervous about this, obviously the race to just sometimes kind of get a little bit, you know, like just, it's, it's just helpful to have somebody who's like, their sole job is to make sure that the trains run on time. That just frees you up to kind of do what you need to do. Um, and that, so that's kind of, that's kind of the role. I, I kind of say that it's best when your name is not mentioned, mm -hmm. <laughs> like you're doing a decent <laughs> job at these things. Like if there's no drama and like things just go on time, you know, but I just spent, just spent a lot of time during the meets, just talking to like, just filling in personal coaches on different things that go on, whether it's uh, schedule changes, um, you know, this week we had a lot of challenges with, uh, you know, there are some protests and things like that. So just kind of, you know, just being a liaison that's only focused on that event area and taking mm -hmm. care of their needs and making sure that they're, um, they're squared away. So, um, but I enjoy it because I, I don't mind mundane tasks, you know, filling <laughs> up like 90, 90 ice bladders for the ice vests and sticking them in the, <laughs> like, I don't like, you know, it's not sexy, but those are fun things. And this, you know, this week was a little bit of a different challenge because um, whereas say in a meet like Doha, there's one hotel, there's one bus, nobody's trying to do anything different. Um, so you could kind of find people, organize them straightforward, even if we're in a different place. Whereas Eugene, as you might imagine, ever, you know, Airbnb, stayed in Airbnb yeah. driving down from Portland. <laughs> the coach is here, the massage therapist there, they're going to, they've got 
people in their training group are from other countries, so they're not going to go to our practice facility, they're mm-hmm. going to go to this practice facility. And look, it's the athletes' championship. We're there to support them. So it's not like we're trying to clamp down on people. It's just more a question of making sure that um, that you uh, that we know what's going on. You know? so, <laughs> it's a lot to keep tabs on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a little different, but I think ultimately that those familiar familiar pieces um, help their athletes. Unfortunately, you know, we had a huge record uh, medal haul. Um, yes. We didn't have as many in the in the distances. And, and uh, we didn't have any in my event area, which um, was a little bit of a challenge. We had, uh, you know, kind of a, a lot of um, series of unfortunate events go on and some di- different things. But um, but I was really privileged to work with, yeah, like, great guys and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some some really outstanding performances, even if they didn't um, end up in medals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about, like, Grant Fisher's double. Yes. Or, you know, what we'll see, we, we'll he, see him get a medal so, soon. That's what I was thinking I hope so. when I was watching that. He, I was like, he's right there. <laughs> I mean, literally right there. Yeah. So that would be, um, that'd be awesome. And he'd mm-hmm. be well-deserving, but you know, there are others out there as well. Um, we didn't just, the ball didn't bounce our way, um, as it might have this, this particular week, but I think it was a, it was a fairly young group. And so I'm excited for many of them on what they might, um, have to offer in the future and um you know i think anytime that as an athlete or coach you kind of interact with one of those meets you get kind of that and maybe you felt this way too um you know you kind of get that feeling of like i want to come back and do this like better you know yeah kind of get fired up you know and keep you know keep raising the ceiling on what's possible you see what other athletes are up to and you're you know fired up to to do it even better so i hope that that is um that we see that yield in future years from some of that, that group of guys, but had, uh, we had, you know, again, been on the several of these teams. I think this, this group was like one of the most cohesive staffs that we work with. And like I said, our, our whole job is just to support the athletes and, and be conduits of information and liaison. So it's, uh, it's good when that all works um, mm-hmm. in sync. And follow-up question. I know a lot of things in track and field operate as volunteer status. Do you get paid to be a coach, USATF coach? Or is that one of the many, you do it for the love of the game? <laughs> um, so the only full-time positions are the relay coaches. because They work all year round kind of managing that pool. Um, I think that's been one of the challenges of the staff coach positions. This is, I think, because they are not paid. Um, certainly you get your way paid and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but you're not given a, a stipend or anything like that. And I think because of that, I think to the outside, it might look like they're kind of like a, a reward or something like that. You might get as kind of like a, um, like a, you know, it's like one of these things is kind of like a, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, but just like a, a figurehead type thing, but I, uh, I don't necessarily feel that way. I think it's more of a, a servant support type type of position you know like I said you you do but uh, you know getting up at three in the morning to go to these marathons and race walks or like you know in the case of Doha in the middle of the night you know it's not something you if you're on you're trying to come on vacation this isn't for you you know mm-hmm. um it's kind of the opposite of that um we've got an interesting model of course in the United States where we have this huge volunteer organization and then a small paid national office staff and I think that's you know we're just interesting in that way and like in a variety of different that 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 mix uh pops up in a variety of different ways within USATF as a whole organization and it it's the same here 
on that, on that stuff. But when it's done right, uh, as I think that it was uh, by and large this week, it's a, a good blend of people who can lend their energy and personalities and expertise to a situation that helps it uh, go as smoothly as it could. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition with people who um, have professional roles to do certain, um, you know, certain functions, um, say travel or equipment or different, you know, like different technical roles. Um, I think that blend is a good one, but it has to be, it has to be done right. Cause we don't, we don't get paid. And um, mm-hmm. I think that not being one of the challenges we also have is because um, many of these things sometimes conflict with the college season. We don't necessarily get as deep a pool of college coaches, obviously being involved unless it's like in the summer, like mm-hmm. this one, or, you know, or if it could be a fall world championships, maybe get a sprints coach who's able to take that time. You're not going to, it's going to be tough to get, um, you know, top, top cross country coaches to, to coach a world. It's going to be in October, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, looking at that, if, if, if I'm in the position, like what I do in my daily life allows me that flexibility, I kind of look at it as like, okay, this is a way in which I can serve. I enjoy it. Um, I certainly learn a lot from it. Um, and if I can be, um, you know, in that way, kind of almost supporting the athletes and their coaches who are doing these other things, that's great. You know, most, like you were kind of saying, most of the athletes that I work with, I mean, I, I'd like to, to keep, uh, encourage, you know, coach them to run as fast as they can, but most of them are, um, you know, working towards that type of level versus being at that kind of mm-hmm. um, uh, world-class level. Um, but I've, you know, because I've been at this for a while, I've been fortunate to have good relationships with a lot of these coaches so I can hopefully be of service in that way, you know, leveraging those relationships and, you know, knowing folks like yourself, like for a long time where at least it's a, it's a familiar face. If you needed something, you'd know who to ask and it wouldn't be um, like, who is this lady? You know, <laughs> yeah, you feel, so. you feel comfortable. Someone you feel comfortable approaching yeah. and asking for help and um, holding the stopwatch, whatever it is, it's going to help. Yeah. Because the yeah. big thing is just, you know, want you guys to like go out and kick butt. And so the more we can make that like a seamless process, despite the red tape and weird stuff, mm-hmm. the travel, the better. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dina. We went a little bit over, but I did want to hear about that. Um, and is there anything we like to ask keeping track if there's anything people don't know about Dina that you would like to talk about that maybe maybe you get stuck on the same topics over and over? Is there anything new you want to say? Anything you want to promote anything you want to talk about, drop it at the end. Um, okay. So <laughs> tons of stuff I would say, uh, so I, I guess I want, it's not really promoting, but one thing I would say to anybody listening to this, um, I've been kind of a, a takeaway from me from this meet and also just from some reflection over the last few months are two things. Um, one, I think that we need to have, um, as many athletes, um, Looking at you, Molly. Also looking at you, Alicia. Alicia, who's <laughs> here? Um, who's even not here? But um, there are uh, usually at the end of my time with a with a group. Maybe I said this to you guys as well in Doha. Um, you know, drop a note that like, hey, once you're a member of one of these teams, you have ten years of voting at the AAC uh, level at USATF, and um, I think that there are some things about our sport that would be greatly enhanced and improved by having as much athlete voice as possible. So I want to encourage 
um, folks with, you know, folks like yourself with a, um, with a career and a pedigree that everybody recognizes at the top, you know, top, top, top level to consider, you know, keeping that fire lit to continue advocating for um, policies and competitions to make sense primarily for the athletes. Um, and there's a, a variety of different ways in which that doesn't always happen these days, but none of that's going to change unless the athletes kind of um, have a certain, a, a strong voice. Obviously there's economic concerns and different, different things like that, but I just want to encourage athletes, whether it's your local association or if you're a national international level at the USATF AAC level, or, you know, even at the world athletics level um, to look for ways to advocate for the sport, to make it better than it is now from an athlete perspective, because I think there's a lot of room for growth in that area and particularly in distance running because of the, I think there's a shrinking of opportunities versus a growth in opportunities. Um, you know, at one point the, the 10K was a little bit under threat. Um, the marathon fields are shrinking at some of the championships. And um, so I think that we need to, to be on alert and continue to fight for that spot because we want, you know, kids in high school and younger to have pathways to still dream about opportunities at the highest level. And so we need to make sure that those opportunities remain and that are, you know, that the environment is getting better. So. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I feel like you don't want to wait till it's too late and you're outraged by a headline that you see in like a newsletter and you need to really be plugged into the voting and those meetings, which I I'm always working my way around. <laughs> you got to show up, you got to vote. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Leave it better than you found like it. Yourself. Yes. Yeah. And especially folks like yourself who can say it, like who have street cred, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all good for me to say like, blah, 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 blah. But you know, um, you have a, a platform with your career um, that gives you some, well, and, and you're using it, you're having a podcast. This is great. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> the more, the more athletes that we have involved, the better off the sport will be, I think. And after all it is for the athletes, that's the whole point of it. So yes. Good perspective. Well, I won't keep you longer, but thanks so much, Dina. It was great to talk to you. And I look forward for to, me. I don't know, maybe seeing you on another team. If I can get myself together, that would be great. <laughs> and maybe we'll see you. Uh, hopefully, yeah, I would love to to have you back on another team if, if you and I found ourselves in that same situation again. Yes. Um, <laughs> I would and, love uh, to do another World Cross team, actually. I hope um, the one in us is the one in Australia just fully canceled or is it happening? No, it's okay. happening. Okay. It's happening, I'll, put that, so. I'll put that on my goals list. Try to make Team USA cross. <laughs> and I hear that I hear that 10K is a good distance for you. So Yeah, historically. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about cross country, but uh, that's gonna feel that is gonna feel tough. I've only ever done the um, AK. So yeah, that's gonna be But now you got that you got that mom strength though. Yeah. You're good. Let's hope that's a real thing. <laughs> I'll be tapping into it. it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Dina. Yeah, hope to see you out there soon and thanks for having me. Yep. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track. Keep track. One time.
Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.